your Bibles, if you would, to Mark chapter number 5. We're returning t- today to our survey through the gospel according to Mark. Um, <clears throat> I thought when I began looking at the gospel of Mark, I wanted to walk with Jesus. I wanted us to spend time walking with the Savior. And I thought, well, it'll be six, eight, ten months maybe. It'd be a long study. But we spent six months of last year from June to November. Every sermon was out of the gospel of Mark, and we did four chapters. So... Buckle up, we're going to try to speed up a little bit in 2019, but I can't jump over something that might bless you or that might be God speaking to you, so we're going to try to hit everything we possibly can, but today we're going to look at something that many of us have heard of as uh, the, the Gadarene demoniac, the Gerasene demoniac, the, the, the demon-possessed man, whatever uh, particular way that yours might have it titled there above your scripture. What I really want us to look at today is that a man who would have been thought of as hopeless. If the world had looked at this man and had a kind of a stamp to put on him, you know, this guy's got a lot of promise, this guy's got a lot of, uh, of opportunity, this guy's got a lot of ability, well, they would have looked at this man at this point in his life and thought hopeless, let him live in, outside of society, we don't want him around us. And so what I'd like us to do is begin in chapter 5. We're going to read it in chunks today because I don't want to spend 20, uh, try to read 20 verses all at once. But let's read the first five verses together to get it in front of us, and then we'll begin from there. Verse 1 of chapter 5. You read along as I read aloud. And they came to the other side of the sea into the country of the Gerasenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And he had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, and no one was strong enough to subdue him. And constantly night and day among the tombs in the mountains he was crying out and gashing himself himself with stones. Now, this is an event that actually happened, okay? Try, and when you read the scripture, try to make sure you remember this is not a story we're reading about. This is not some ancient history text that may have happened. This really genuinely happened to these people. This is a single, multi-layered event. And what I mean by that is if you're roping a horse, for instance, that is a single event, but it's kind of multi-layered because if you get it from the point of view of the horse, it may not be all that happy. You get it from the point of view of the rider who's roping the horse. He's got a different point of view completely. If you've got people in the stands watching this rodeo, that's a completely other different you know, point of view. And, and so all this is, what I want, what all that to say, this is one event, and we're going to look at the same events and, and the same people, but radically different points of view because there was a point of view of the ministry team that came with Jesus that got off the boat. That would be the disciples. There was the point of view of the man who was tormented. And that's a point of view that we want to take a look at. There was a point of view of the master who was going to touch that man who was tormented. And then the point of view of the the motivated townsfolk. So we're going to look at all four of those. And and, and as we go through this, I could get sidetracked so easily. And I'm going to try not to. Because there's so many interesting social and geographic things that we could examine in this passage. But, But I don't want this to become a textbook lecture. I really do want you to come at this from the point of view of these different people of the actual people who were there, because you're going to be able to kind of identify with them. The more we look at this, the more you're going to understand that these actual people who were there who lived through this meeting. And so the first ones I want to look at, again, are that ministry team that came with Jesus as as they got out of the boat. They had just come across the lake on a boat ride to remember. Now, we have to back up a whole month 
to review that. So let me just quickly say in chapter 4, verses uh, 35 to 41, you may remember Jesus said, let's go across to the other side. And then Jesus went down into the boat and, and went to sleep. They took him as he was, went down into the boat. He went to sleep. And, and as they're crossing the lake, a furious squall comes up. That means there's lightning, storm, there's wind, there's waves. There's all kinds of stuff going on. And the, the disciples didn't panic. But as they continued to go across, they left him asleep, and, and, and the wind wouldn't let up. They kept rowing, and the boat began to fill up with water from the waves, and they kept rowing. They're not panicking yet, but then when the sea was about to win, they decided it's time to panic and wake up the master. And so they woke up Jesus, and you remember the story. Jesus stood up and said, peace, be still. And the wind stopped blowing, and the waves stopped rolling, and all of a sudden there's a great calm. And these guys that one moment were terrified of the water and the waves and going to the bottom, now they're even more terrified of this one who could speak to the storm and have it go. And the last verse of, the, of chapter 4, it says, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? These guys had just been through a boat ride to remember. And so as they're cruising up here to shore... These amazed, bewildered, even terrified disciples, this ministry team, that's the they when it says there in verse five, chapter 5, verse 1, and they came. As Jesus gets out of the boat now, here they are, maybe the adrenaline's still pumping, they're just happy to be on the ground, and, and Jesus steps out of the boat and they begin to hear something. From way up the hill over there, there's some little building-looking things. They, they, maybe you can't really tell what it is from a distance, but they start to hear this hollering. They start to hear this screaming voice. They look up there and they can see, see the figure of a man running. And I mean, he's coming fast. Well, those, those little buildings, maybe that, that's a graveyard. That's what that is. It's a bunch of tombs. And this man is coming fast out of there. A demon-possessed man is running towards them at a, at a dead run. Now, <clears throat> as we read this incident here, verses 3, 4, and 5, we wouldn't have known that or the disciples wouldn't have known that as he came out of the tombs. We find out out later, maybe the, the, the demon-possessed man later, after he became the man, he, he began to say, listen, this is how I used to be, and this is what used to happen, and this is how I, you know, they found that out later on. But all they know right now is they start to get out of the boat. Jesus steps out of the boat, and here comes this, this, this wild-looking man comes boiling down out of the graveyard. And such a man. I mean, you, I have to think, what would I do? Because here comes this guy, he's probably very dirty. He's been living in a, in a place of rotting corpses. He's been living in a place where there's no real shelter except for going in the tomb itself, so he would be dirty. His hair, he probably had a whole year of bad hair days. Just imagine, bed hair, every day. Only now it's, it's in his beard, and he's got those, you, some of you have, have dealt with long-haired animals, and they get those little knot, rats and knots in their hair, and you can't get them out, and you just have to cut them out. His hair would have looked like that in all directions. It would have been dreadlocks, but bad. And he's coming. He's, maybe you could see his face, maybe you couldn't, but you could sure hear his voice. And not only that, but Scripture tells us that he had scabs all over his body in various levels of getting better. And in some places, it was still pumping the bright red ooze of blood where he had self-inflicted cuts upon himself with, with sharp stones or something else. I mentioned stones here. But he's, he's looking bad, okay? Now, the other part about this is he had little to probably, more likely, no clothing. If he did have anything on, it was dirty. And as he got close enough, the smell of him would be bad too. So they couldn't smell him as they hear him he, he, up way up there. But as he gets closer, they're going to smell this man because he's been living in the midst of everything filthy, dirty, and disgusting. And here he is charging down the hill, bellowing at the top of his lungs. And remember, this really happened. 
not just a tail. They're about to get out of the boat. Here comes this wild man. What are you going to do? I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm staying in the boat. Jesus is already out on the shore. Now, of course, Simon Peter, being Simon Peter, he probably was like, okay, let's have it. Let's do it. That's just Simon Peter. But the reason I started with these guys <clears throat> is because we know they did eventually get out of the boat because the man received a ministry. He received the ministry to at least where he had been clothed. He didn't have a little suitcase back up in one of the tombs. That came from the disciples. He had been, has, had been cleaned up. His, his bandages where he needed to be bandaged. He would have been cared for by his disciples. But as for the other members of the ministry team, as far as the disciples, they played absolutely no part in the deliverance and freedom of this man. That took Jesus. We can come alongside of people and help them with their physical needs. We can come alongside of people and help them with food and with shelter and the things of this world that are necessary. But it takes the Lord himself to set somebody free from sin and death. It takes Jesus himself to set somebody free from the pain and the, the past that plagues them. And Jesus came ashore. These disciples really are going to be kind of relegated to the place of just being the, the, the guys in the stands, if you will. They're going to be the watching audience for what was about to transpire. So that's the first point of view, the, the, the disciples. Secondly, let's look on to the man who was tormented. And we're going to read some more. Let's read verses 6 through about 10. And seeing Jesus from a distance, he ran up and bowed down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What do I have to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. For he had been saying, this Jesus had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, this is Jesus asking, What is your name? And he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to entreat him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now, we meet this man here in chapter 5. But his story, that is, his experience in all this, did not begin just outside the graveyard that day. You understand? This man had been suffering for some time. In fact, verse 4 reminds us that he had often been bound with shackles. He had often been chained up. And I don't know what that exactly means. Maybe when they needed to go bury somebody, they'd have to chain him up so he wouldn't disrupt the funeral. Maybe that it would be, he'd be down in town scrounging for food whatever, they would catch him and they would chain him up and he would sh shatter the shackles and tear apart the chains. He would have been shunned. He would have, they would have been frightened of him. They, they wanted him out of their life, out of their area. Okay. We have no idea, though, how the man came to be demon-possessed. And it's interesting to me that nowhere in Scripture does it really tell how a person becomes demon-possessed. Now, it does say that if a, dream, a demon is driven out and the man doesn't clean up his life, the demon will come back and bring with him seven devils more wicked than himself. But as to how this man became demon-possessed, we don't know. And Scripture's silent on that point. But uh, whether it was some combination of bad decisions, some combination of bad decisions and bad company, maybe it was some combination of bad decisions, bad company, and bad morals, maybe he was worshiping at one of the demonic idols there in, in the neighborhood on, on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. However it worked out, he a cult or whatever, that's all just a guess, this man found himself overwhelmed by this demonic force. He was in serious problem. He was in a serious problem. And, and, and <clears throat> by the way, those people that, that even today want to tell you that, well, there's not really any such thing as demon possession. I mean, after all, this is the 21st century. There's not really anything such as, I mean, what, what people think of as demon possession, well, that's just epilepsy. Or what people think of as demon possession, well, that's just bipolar. Or what people think, that's just schizophrenia. Well, 
if this is some mental disorder, this mental disorder called itself by name, and this mental disorder had a conversation with Jesus. Now, somebody might say, well, now, wait a minute. People that have a mental disturbance, mentally disturbed people, can speak as if they're somebody else. Well, okay, that's one of the reasons, I, you know, some people are educated far beyond their intelligence. And some of them will look at this with all the individual um, details that are here and still not be able to see that this was an actual entity speaking to Jesus because uh, the, the mental condition, no matter what mental condition you can come up with, a mental condition does not give you supernatural strength. A mental condition, does. this was a supernatural entity that when chained up somehow could break chains. Now, I'm, a pretty, t I'm pretty stout. Somebody here is probably more stout than me. Let's say, let's say it's Derek. Derek, if I chained you up, you're going to just, here we go. Yeah, there we go. See? Is that, do we need to cast out something? No? Okay. The fact is, most of us would look at that and think, well, I'm done. I'm shackled. I'm chained. This man had this supernatural strength where he could break chains. He could actually shatter and break the shackles, which means taking metal and tearing it in, in pieces. And verse 4 tells us very clearly he was too strong to be subdued by anyone. That's not a mental disorder. That's a supernatural interference by some kind of a being. or some, It's not a mental disorder. And not only that, did he have supernatural strength, but he had supernatural insight. Because mental disorders would not make it where you would know who you're talking to before you get to them. Remember, this man came boiling down out of the tombs, and he immediately came, threw himself at Jesus' feet, and called Jesus by name. Now, how did he know that was Jesus? It was a supernatural insight given to him by that demon, because otherwise it's just some random guy getting out of a boat. But he came up and immediately called him Jesus, called him by name, and then called him by title, Son of the Most High God. That's amazing to me. That's an interesting thing. Not only did he not acknowledge Jesus by name and title, but he knelt. And then he also, not only supernatural strength and supernatural insight, I think we can be sure that this was a demon because of the supernatural wickedness. He was self-destructive. He was living in a place of isolation and death. And he had this unnatural activity he was doing. You know, it was just, it was immodesty, if nothing else. But if anybody could be looked at and say, wow, that person's hopeless, this guy was in that place. It was that way with this wild man. He was written off at least as crazy and dangerous and then with me, it might actually be demon-possessed, but it was far worse than that because it wasn't just one demon. It was a crowd of devils. When Jesus asked his name, he wasn't even asking to know about how many it was. Jesus asked to get the name because there was something going on here that was a little different. Jesus did that only so that the disciples could find out what was going on. How many is a, is a legion? Well, first of all, we have to establish demons, they lie. So there might have just been one who was claiming to be more than one and saying, we are many because I wanted to scare you off because I'm too big for you. Well, okay, maybe. But a legion was anything between 4,200 and 6,000 men in the ancient, in the Roman times. It would be 10 cohorts of Roman soldiers, you know, infantry, uh, cavalry. So somewhere between 4,200 and 6,000. Was the demon telling the truth? Was he exaggerating? That's totally immaterial because Jesus didn't care about it either. He didn't quibble. He just immediately kept telling the man, telling this demon to come out of the man. And this man, tormented, comes out to Jesus, bows down, falls on his knees as if he is worshiping him or at least doing him honor. Some commentators I read have suggested that it was the man seeking help, or it was the man who ran and, and bowed, and it was the demon that growled and screamed and shouted and bargained. 
as if the man bowed down begging for help and the demon was the one screaming and shouting and defying the deliverance. Think for a moment what this man had given up. I mean, think about it. He had given up friends. He had given up family. And I don't mean given up by choice, but he'd been driven away from those things. Regular food, comfort, home, safety, dignity, sanity. He had lost all hope. He was in a place where he could not be helped. And he had constant violence of thought and action, constant pain, constant loneliness, self-destructive, possibly suicidal thoughts, and we'll see a little bit more about that in a moment. He was possessed, he was overcome, outcast, trapped, ostracized, hopeless! But with Jesus, there's no such thing as hopeless. No matter how bad our circumstances might be, no matter how far gone we might think we are, no matter how we look at somebody and we think, that person, they've given up on life itself. There's no such thing as hopeless with Jesus. So let's turn our, our, our attention from the, the ministry team and the man tormented now to our, the point of view of the master who's going to touch this situation. I want to begin again in verse number 8. For he, that's Jesus, had been saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And he was asking him, What is your name? And he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he began to entreat him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now, there was a big herd of swine feeding there on the mountain. And the demons entreated him, saying, Send us into the swine that we may enter them. Now, <clears throat> Jesus did not see this man as a lost cause. Jesus didn't see this man to be avoided at all costs. Jesus didn't see this man even as dangerous the way that everyone else would. Jesus saw a sufferer, a man created by Almighty God who was suffering, who was a victim in many ways. Even if it was a victim of his own decisions, even if it was a, a victim of his own choices, his own failures, his own sins, Jesus saw him as a sufferer, and so he reached out to this man, though it says nothing about him actually touching or reaching out, but I'm using that as a metaphor. He reached out to this man with the gentle hands of ministry, rather than with the fist of rejection. Jesus reached out to this man with the gentle hands of ministry instead of the boot of condemnation. Jesus reached out to this man with the gentle hands of ministry instead of the chain of removal and bondage. In fact, just by his presence, Jesus had already invaded the domain of this demon here because as soon as Jesus came ashore, this demon had to run and bow at his feet. Whether it was by the choice of the man or just by the fact that Jesus had shown up, this, this demon horde came, and uh, the fact that Jesus had come not just to disturb the demon domain, though, he had come to deliver the man. With his authoritative words, with his commands, the Savior was going to break the chains that were really on the man. He was going to break the bondage that the man was really under. The moment Jesus saw the man, he discerned the demon, he began to speak deliverance. That's what it means there in verse number 8 when he says he'd been saying to him, right away Jesus began trying to, trying to bring this thing to a close and, and, and deliver this man. I believe that Jesus had actually come across the lake for this appointment. Because really, when you look at it, it's all he accomplished and he left. But he came across the lake for this appointment to set this man free. Because as long as Jesus is involved, there is no such thing as hopeless. Now quickly, we had ministry team, man tormented, master touching. Now we're going to look at the motivated townspeople. So we need to read the rest of the passage, at least most of the rest of it. Verses 11 again. Now there was a big herd of swine feeding there on the mountain that the demons entreated him, saying, Send us into the swine so that we may enter them. And he gave them permission. And coming out, the unclean spirits entered the swine. And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea, about 2,000 of them, and they were drowned in the sea. And their herdsmen ran away and reported it in the city and out in the country. And the people came to see what it was that had happened. 
And they came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down clothed and in his right mind. The very man who had had the legion. And they became frightened. And those who had seen it described to them how it had happened to the demon-possessed man and all about the swine. And they began to entreat him to leave their region or to depart from their region. Isn't this interesting? Here are these townspeople, these people, the locals. They tried to restrain this man. They had tried to restrict this man. They tried to run off this man because they were afraid of him. I mean, I'm not going out there with that crazy man. You wouldn't let your kids go out that way play, and you wouldn't want to go fish on that part of the, of the, the Sea of Galilee. They avoided him. They, if anything, you could say they alienated him. Just be very sweet about it. You would think that if somebody came and took care of the wild man for them, that would be thankful. I'm going to thank you for that. That's going to be something. Well, we're glad you showed up. So what was their reaction, these townspeople, these locals here, what was their reaction to this amazing, generous, graceful, merciful, transformational miracle? Verse 15 says they saw Jesus, they saw the man, they heard about the pigs. And so in verse 17, they came to Jesus, and in so many words they said, we see the change you're able to make, we can't deny the power that you have, we understand about the pigs, so what we would like for you to do for us is leave. They came to the very one who could set them free as well from their sin and from their diseases and from all the rest of the things that Jesus could come and, and did come to do. Could you leave, please? We'd like for you to go. Imagine that, the very power of God. I'm talking about the Son of God himself comes to their town, and there's no denying it because here's the wild man. Now, now he's not the wild man, he's the freed man sitting there in his right mind, clothed. Imagine somebody with that kind of purifying influence, someone with that kind of delivering power, that kind of freedom-giving authority. Somebody like that loose in our town or loose in our region. What are you going to do? Well, there's two possibilities. You will either embrace and accept him, or you will reject and deny him. There is no middle ground with Jesus. Oh, yeah, I can be in that gray area. No, there's not really. Because you will, once you're confronted with the truth, you will either accept and embrace him or you will reject and deny him. So they asked him to leave. I mean, they tried to seclude and subdue the wild man. Now they wanted to exclude and exile the miracle man. Somebody says, well, how come? I mean, did they have another herd of pigs somewhere? Was that the problem? Maybe they had demonic ideas and practices that they wanted left alone. Either way, what it really boils down to is they liked their status quo. They liked where they were, what they were doing, how it was happening. They didn't want any interference from God or anybody else. These people loved the status quo more than they loved seeing a sufferer set free. Loving sin more than seeing somebody set free from their torment. Is, is our day any really that much different from that? Are we today actively trying to drive Jesus from our culture? Maybe not as a church, maybe not as individuals, but as a nation, as a culture, it's a constant struggle. The pagan world is once again asking Jesus to go. Our day, our heathen, and our, well, let's say it this way, our heathens and our pagans claim that they're far more modern and scientific and sophisticated, but still what they reject is the holiness of Christ because it terrifies this world. They reject the power of God because it terrifies this world. They reject the demands of lordship because it's going to change everything about them, and they don't want any of that. 
And Jesus, not going to violate their will, he gets back into the boat to leave that region. But that's not quite the end of the story. Not quite. Verses 18 to 20, let me quickly finish here. And as he was getting into the boat, <clears throat> the man who had been demon-possessed was entreating him that he might accompany him. And he did not let him, but he said, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. The man who had been released from the demon possession, this man who had been living in that tomb for all this length of time, he says, Jesus, can I come with you? I see what you've done for me. I just want some more of you. Where you go, I want to go. You just set me free. I want to use that freedom to go with you. And Jesus said, no, I've got a better idea. I've got a job for you. You go home back to your own and witness to the goodness of God. Go back to the people that know you and witness to the mercy of God. Go back to the people that have seen you in the past and witness to the grace of God. Go back to all those people who remember you as the Gadarene demoniac and say, no longer demoniac. Now here I am, delivered by Almighty God. The one the whole region used to call, you know, the wild man down there at the tombs. Luke's account of this same miracle tells us that he went first to that first town, the very town where the townspeople came from. He went there, showed himself to everybody, preached the word, and then he went to the rest of the Decapolis, which just made the ten cities. It would have been what we think of today as the Jordan side of the, the Jordan River, the Jordanian side of the Jordan River. All that in there were uh, a lot of great things I could talk about. I'm going to move on, but it, it, everyone marveled. They saw this man, and they marveled at the change. They marveled at the power. They marveled at the witness, at the boldness of this man. The story's told of an event that took place during the wars of Napoleon Bonaparte. The little emperor, you remember him? He was five foot two and three quarters. And he had a way of always choosing the largest horse he could find. Because after all, I'm the emperor. I got to have a mount that looks like an emperor's horse. That way he'd be head and shoulders above everybody, even when they were horseback. Well, anyway, one day he came into camp on one of these large horses. And it was a little, little, little green. And it began to rear and, 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 you know, boil up around the way horses do. And the little emperor was about to get knocked off. Well, I don't care how strong you are, how smart you are, or how emperor-like you are, you get thrown off of a horse, you can die. And so he's holding on for dear life, and this corporal comes over and grabs the horse and calms him down and gets him down and saves his emperor's life. And he's just sitting there just doing what he thought he ought to do, and the emperor climbs down off of that horse and he says, Thank you, general. Promoted him to general, right like that. Now, <clears throat> He had a choice to make. Do I accept what my emperor has said, or do I start looking at the corporal's marks on my coat? Because his coat still said corporal. His hat still said corporal. His bivouac, where his, his tent would have been, still said corporal. But the emperor said general. This man took his emperor at his word, he went and put the horse away, and he reported to the tent where the generals were. He said, the emperor has just made me a general. I'm here for further orders. You think they treated him like a corporal or like a general? Fact is, it doesn't matter how they treated him. The emperor said, you're a general, and that's all he went back with. My emperor says, I'm a, I'm a general now. 
This man, this wild man, this man who used to be demon-possessed, he was unmistakably the same man. But oh, oh what a difference when people looked at that same man who once they would have run away from him, maybe they still did. But now, he's no longer in chains, he's no longer shackled, he's set free, not just from the demon. But now he wants to follow Jesus wherever he'll go. Maybe you sit here this morning and you see yourself as hopeless. Maybe you're facing a situation that just somebody else has called you hopeless or they see you as hopeless or helpless and and maybe you're in that situation where your world has just caved in on you. I counsel you this morning to cry out to Jesus. In fact, do do what this, this man did. Come kneel at the foot of the Master because I can tell you He has your answer. He has your deliverance. He has your, the strength and the help and the wisdom that you need. And, and our biggest problems, like when I was the, the little boy there, I had to admit I needed help. Sometimes God will let us get so far down in our frustrations. You know why? Because we're, we're not willing to ask for help. They tell you, they tell me, when you're, when you're trying to save somebody who's drowning, you've got to let them almost drown so that they're ready to help, let you help them. Otherwise, they'll bring you both down. Sometimes God will let us get to the very bottom until we admit we need help. And that's mostly our stubborn pride. I'll figure it out. I'll read the book. I'll take care of it. I don't need any help. Yes, you do. There's one who is wiser. There's one who loves you, who is stronger, and he will help you. Admit you need help and believe it is he who, whose help you need. And then cry out to him for help. You see, it's kind of the same way you get saved. You admit that you're a sinner. You believe that Jesus died in your place, took your sin debt to that cross to to carry away your sin and your death and your punishment, and then you confess Him as Lord, admitting that only He could save you. It's the same way that we need to accept Him as our helper. See, if you have done that, you can still have days that are bad. You can still have weeks that are tough. You can still have moments of doubt and fear and disturbance and depression. But remember this, whatever the world tells you, whatever your own conscience tells you, the Bible says you are a new creation. Old things have passed away, behold, new things have come. The Bible says, whereas I once was lost, now I am found. I was blind, now I see. The Bible says you're brand new. You have a new identity. Let's pray. (laughs) 